This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, ICU doctor and author Jessica Nudek-Zitter is joined in conversation by CIIS Dean of Alumni Richard Boogs to discuss her drive to help patients find a better path to the end of life. This talk was recorded on March 22, 2017, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. And thank you all for coming. So where I'd like to start tonight is at the very beginning of this incredible book, which I couldn't put down. And unlike a lot of things that have been written about death, I felt enlivened by taking it on, thinking, oh my God, I'm finally spending the time to read about what it takes for my own chance of a good death. So I'd like to ask you to read um, at the beginning, because it's sort of your epiphany moment, and uh, you can, we've already talked about editing it down a little bit, but the chapter is called The End of Life Conveyor Belt. And I don't know what that brings up for you in terms of images. Think about, you know, dying at home in a familiar place, nice and cozy and comfortable, or on a conveyor belt. So I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. All right, I'm going to be selecting a few chapters to pull out, because otherwise it will be too long, but... This really was um, my epiphany moment um, as an ICU doctor, uh, trained to save life, to use technology, and to prolong life at all costs. And that was really my motto and my paradigm. And this moment actually was really my epiphany. So I'll start. The patient had been on the regular hospital ward for weeks. The latest round of chemotherapy for her metastatic breast cancer had severely damaged her kidneys causing a host of serious problems which had now turned critical. She was transferred from the floor to room five in the intensive care unit for more aggressive treatment. As her bed whizzed into the unit, propelled by the ward attending, he looked up at me. She needs dialysis. I called renal and they'll do it as soon as you get the dialysis catheter in. It was 2003 and I was a new attending at University Hospital in Newark, New Jersey. Let's get to it, I thought. I sat down with our team's medical student to scan the patient's chart. Not only were the patient's kidneys failing, but her liver was shutting down as well. The acid level in her blood was dangerously high, and her blood pressure had plummeted dangerously low. There's probably no turning this around, I thought, but we might as well give it a try. The student and I gathered the various accoutrements for the procedure from different carts around the ICU. I instructed him on the importance of placing a waterproof chucks sheet underneath the impending surgical site to catch any blood or fluid that might result from the procedure. You really want to keep the nurses on your side, I said, and a messy sheet means the whole bed needs to be changed. Then I cleared off the rolling bedside table and placed the catheter kit on top. This is the Quinton catheter, I said. I pulled off the top layer of the kit and then after donning sterile gloves, proceeded to unfold the blue paper wrapping on the inner tray, and the inner tray sat like a treasure chest in the middle of the sea. You're going to want to follow the set of steps that I teach you in sequence each time, 
I said. I proceeded to set up the kit, filling its syringes with lidocaine and saline and flushing the catheter to ensure its ports were functioning. Then I proceeded to clean the surgical site by turning the patient's head to the left in order to better access the large vein below her right jaw. I swabbed the area with widening circles of betadine three times, and then it was time to enclose myself within the sterile field. This is a procedure whereby the operator encloses herself in a sterile gown and gloves in order to prevent even the slightest chance of bacteria coming into contact with the surgical site. I pulled off the betadine stained gloves with a quick snap. Gathering my hair in a bun, I slipped on a bouffant cap and then tied a mask over my mouth. Next, I opened the package containing a sterile gown, touching only the inner side of it so as to keep the outside sterile, and stood in the center of the room to shake it open. I wriggled into it. The nurse moved behind me and quickly fastened the ties at the back of the gown. I pushed my hands through to don the sterile gloves that lay waiting on sterile paper in front of me. The nurse handed me one end of a sterile half-size surgical drape. Being careful that my gloves did not touch her hand, I moved away from her, spreading the drape over the patient. And now it was time to take my place at the head of the patient's bed. The ICU nurse pushed the bedside table, covered in its own drape, right up next to the bed so that it stood beside the patient's right arm. Another Lego piece of blue sterility snapped into place. I asked the nurse to tilt the head of the bed down below the foot into a position called Trendelenburg. This increases the pooling of blood in the neck in order to facilitate access to the vein. And then I saw Pat. She was leaning against the door jamb, and she looked furious. Oh, crap, I thought to myself. Here we go again. Five foot, ten inches tall with a strawberry blonde bob, Pat loomed at the door in her white coat. The woman had nothing if not presence. Pat Murphy was an advanced practice registered nurse who now ran the recently formed family support team in our, in our ICU. I didn't know much about it, except that suddenly there were people with clipboards looking over our shoulders and talking to our patients. And somehow, I, find my, I found myself feeling judged. The team's message to us was that our patients needed more information and support than we doctors were giving them. Unlike most nurses I had worked with, Pat called it as she saw it, within earshot or not, and without regard for the hierarchical structure of ICU culture, where doctors' words were gospel. She and her team of tough New Jersey women entered rooms without our permission, talked to our patients without asking, and wrote recommendations in the chart like a regular medical consult team. And now, Pat stood in the doorway, tapping her foot. On her face was a mixture of horror and resignation. I, refo I refocused my attention on the patient. She was moaning, but still, her face covered under the thick surgical drapes. As I prepared to insert a large needle into her neck, Pat lifted an imaginary phone to her ear. 911, get me the police, she said, glaring at me. They're torturing a patient in the ICU at University Hospital. Good old <laughs> Epiphany Pat. Epiphany moments. Yeah. So Pat was one of the first people to really get you to pause and maybe reflect. The first person. The, yeah. The first person who ever brought the words to this experience that I had been having 
for 10 years noticing subconsciously and not having any other paradigm, any other model for doing it differently. And what allowed you to be open to the possibility that she had something to teach you? It didn't happen for a while. I was very resistant. I was very arrogant. Um, like many doctors, I didn't think a nurse had anything to teach me at that time. I'm, I'm ashamed to say that, honestly. Keep the blood pressure up. Keep the heart beating. That's, that's all I knew how to do. That's all I had ever been taught. Was, that was the goal of what my training was. So this idea that death can be, the end of life conveyor belt, tell me a little bit more about how you came to that. Those words, honestly, I, I put together while I was writing the book. Um, I hadn't really, you know, it, it's, you can, it's retrospect. It's looking back over my career that, I, that, that, that just, just became so obvious that it's a, it is a machine. It's a machine. It's, it's, it's protocol-driven. I mean, we are taught protocol after protocol after protocol. And um, there's a place for protocols. There's a place for rapid, reflexive, sequential actions when it comes to saving life. I mean, th it, it, there's, that exists for a reason. I mean, it works. Sometimes we save lives and we really send people back to live with their families. But the way we have, we, we, we celebrate these protocols, we worship these protocols, we've sort of decided that there's some end to this technology and protocolization in and of itself, that it is the holy grail, instead of a means to some kind of an end, is, is really where we get into trouble. So this whole idea of the, the medicalization of death, I mean, of the end of life, which uh, we take us through it because I know it starts sometimes with just the breathing tube. Mm -hmm. And if someone isn't aware, has not made, uh, made their wishes known, tell us a little bit about the progression because you, you, you repeat that a number of times with various patients that you treat in here who don't understand that this is the first step, then it's followed by this, and then it's surgical attachment of... Yeah. For every organ in the body, as it starts to fail, there is something we can do. Um, if a lung starts, if you start to go into respiratory failure and your ventilatory system is not strong enough to keep ventilating, we can put a tube in and blow air into you. And we can drop your CO2 and raise your oxygen, usually. And if we use a little peep, we can also help your oxygenation. And there's a whole bunch of things we can do to deal with oxygenation problems, carbon dioxide problems. When your kidneys start to fail, dialysis can make the numbers look better. It can clean the blood. Um, it can drop the acid level. You know, when your blood pressure is flagging, and there's so many reasons why your blood pressure could fly, flag. It could be from septic shock. It could be from cardiogenic shock. It could be from losing a lot of blood. And there's many reasons. There's a bunch of, we have this differential diagnosis, and we just say, oh, well, if it's this one, I'm going to do these three steps. And if it's this type of shock, I'm going to do these three steps. These are all in Harrison's textbook of medicine. And so as each thing starts to fail, we have almost, you know, um, an endless number of things we can continue to try to do. And that end-of-life conveyor belt concept is essentially this sense that you, you just keep shuttling the patient along as their organs are failing with more and more things that you're adding on, like almost like a conveyor belt. Mm -hmm. And it all ends in the same place. I mean, 
in a person who has a trauma victim, for example, whose kidneys are starting to fail and then who has a lot of blood loss, for those things, you actually might restore health and get them home. But for patients who are dying, the end-of-life conveyor belt, by the way, only applies to patients who are dying. Because a person who might come back to life, it's not called a conveyor belt. It's called trying to save their life, trying to restore their health. But for someone who's dying, this is when the concept applies. It's, it's, this, it's this dying body whose organs are starting to shut down and this just sense that we're gonna continue to apply things to that body um, with this ultimately no chance for success. That's what an end-of-life conveyor belt is. And the result, by the way, the ending point, the last stop on the end-of-life conveyor belt is, um, you can imagine, the body's now gotten hooked up to many different machines and different IVs and things like that are getting put into it. And those patients end up usually, if they are stable enough, because we can stabilize a body on machines, they go to a ventilator facility. And there are ventilator facilities all over this country. In fact, the number I just saw as of 2015 is 400,000 patients a year with what's called chronic critical illness. And that number should rise as the baby boomer um, age, you know, continues to, to come of age. We've, I think in 2011, the first baby boomer year became 65. So there's going to be a rapid rise in aging. And this issue of chronic critical illness and chronic dependence on ventilators in a ventilator facility is something that's much more associated with aging. Um, so we're going to see a rapid rise in that number. And it's a very, it's an epidemic. So this is just room after room of people, people being kept alive by machines. Yeah. Many of whom may or may not have wanted that but because they either didn't have a surrogate or somebody would speak for them, or they just said, Doc, do everything you can for me. Keep me alive at all costs. And you have no choice but to do that, yeah, to ventilate them. And, and from the physician's perspective, I'm, I'm curious to hear what people think, but if you're the doctor, even a doctor like me who really wants to, who believes in enhancing autonomy and communication, information transfer and getting people the information they need to make personal decisions about how they want to live and die, even someone like me standing at the bedside, if I don't know, if someone's in a coma and their family may or may not be there and I don't know how this person, what this person would want, I'm gonna err on the side of continuing to prolong their life because I think, I mean, I, th I believe that's the right thing to do. And so I'm begging people, please, you know, talk about these what-if scenarios. What if I, this happened to me? What if that happened to me? So that the information for doctors like me is, is available and we can, we can have some information about what you would tell us you would want to do. Because if I don't know, I'm going to default to continuing to keep you alive. So why is it you suppose that we have such a difficult time talking about this point in our life, which is sort of a natural progression that's going to happen for all of us, except for, tell us a little bit about the, we were talking about the, the Eos myth and, oh. and the goddess of the, of the dawn and how we have this idea maybe of, of fountain of, of youth and living forever. I think humans have been sort of in, in search of perpetual life, this sort of fantasy perpetual life and the magic pill or the miracle cure since the beginning of human time. I mean, we're a smart species <laughs> and we, you know, not only intelligence and cognitive capabilities, but our genetic code makes us want to stay alive. It's you know like any other animal. 
Um, and so, you know, there are myths going back to the Greeks and I'm sure beyond before about perpetual life and fountains of youth and, and this myth of Eos and Tithonus, which you're referring to, which is a Greek myth of um, Eos, who was the goddess of the dawn, wanting her um, human lover, Tithonus, to be, have, to be granted perpetual life. So she asked Zeus and he said, okay. And so as she was walking out of Zeus's chambers, she realized, oh my goodness, I asked for perpetual life, but what I really meant was perpetual youth. And, you know, oops, oops is right. She, you know, there are many, many paintings of, of Eos and Tithonus in, you can see in, in uh, and, and they're all this, this guy who's, you know, really just deteriorated and both in mind and body. Um, and it says babbling endlessly. I mean, that's some of the descriptions of, of him. And Eos, this goddess, you know, was for the rest of her days really tasked with uh, tending to this man. And I think we see a lot of that type of experience now with this chasing of that fantasy through this very recent development over the past hundred years of these technologies to keep bodies alive. So we've now, we've got this fantasy, which we've always had, but now we have the technology to chase it, and we do. And so we've developed a lot of tithonuses in a, in a way, which is very tragic. It must be very difficult as a physician to see this and know that this is avoidable in some ways if people had conversations, and not just a, a one-time dialogue, but an ongoing conversation over time as things change. A really robust and nuanced conversation because this is a very complex, you know, it's complex. I mean, it, it, and, and, and in my book, there are so many stories of, it's not always so easy. Like, it sounds easy. I'm making it sound like, you know, there's good deaths and there's bad deaths. It's so, you know, of course, who's going to, you know, you're always going to choose a good death. It's actually complicated because a lot of times there's uncertainty in medicine and we don't know what direction things are going and and in fact that uncertainty which is rife especially in the intensive care unit is another excuse for us to just say okay well let's just keep treating just keep treating we don't know you know even in the face of uncertainty I think it's our obligation both as lay people and as the physicians caring for those patients to to still work with the best that we have, the best experience and intuition, you know, sometimes it is intuition of where we think things are going so that we can still have that conversation and not say, oh no, well, we're not 100% certain that he's gonna die, so we'll just keep pushing and pushing, which is what we do all the time. You know, we have to be able to function even in the presence of uncertainty because uncertainty is always a part of critical illness, if that makes sense. But do you feel like at some point, your, your message, your idea about quality of life doesn't get through to people, or they don't really imagine being in one of those ventilator facilities. I mean, it's a gamble, isn't it, to, to go that route and never go home? It is a gamble, actually, and um, I think what people need to understand is the downside of that gamble. Um, my, my husband always talks about, you know, we sort of talk about this sort of concept of a lottery ticket. You know, people say, well, gee, you know, if there's a chance I'll live, I want to take it, I want to go for it, and sort of like this lottery analogy. And the difference is that with a lottery ticket, the upside is a million dollars, five million dollars, whatever you're going to win. The downside is you spent five bucks or ten bucks. In this, the upside is that you'll have some miracle cure, which by the time we're getting to these types of patients is very unlikely, very unlikely. We're talking about serious outliers. And the downside is really serious. The downside is the end-of-life conveyor belt, living in ventilator facilities. 
So it's a different, it's like a, you know, people sometimes make their decisions based on this lottery analogy, and I think it's a really important thing to understand what the burdens are and, and the downsides that, that how, and how serious they can be for certain people. And we never lived at a time when there was so much medical technology. Yeah, and every day there's more. Every day. I mean, I can't get over the rapid, the rapidity with which we're creating new things to try on, a, on organs as they fail. It's amazing. Yeah, and the extreme, I guess, being the, the folks that want to have the cryogenics yeah. and you know, be frozen and be brought back when that disease can be cured or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Not realizing that they're not going to know anybody, right? Yeah, they don't <laughs> think the about that part. part. <laughs> Unless they get all their friends to sign up for the same club. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's a, and it's a big thing in, in the Bay Area, you know, cryogenics, and, and there's people down there on, on the peninsula trying to hack, hack the genome and, and make it so that we can defeat death and, and, and you know... We're always going to be trying for that, but I mean, it's it's um, uh, as an ICU doctor, I'm I'm amazed uh, to see the th things that are just kind of coming our way. And here's the thing, they do help sometimes. I mean, there's this technology called ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It's basically a heart. It, it's it's like a cardiac bypass machine. So somebody could come in um, who's got who whose heart has just stopped or whose lungs are completely impossible to oxygenate. I'm not gonna get in too much into the physiology. But this machine, if you attach the patient to it, um, can oxygenate the blood and kind of take over in some circumstances for a completely failed heart and or a completely failed lung. And it's, really interesting, just the ethics coming up with this machine. Because I've personally seen a couple of patients go home after being put on ECMO who would never have survived three years ago. And, but when you start having those kinds of saves, which is wonderful. I mean, I, I, it's great. It's kind of like when the iron lung was introduced for polio victims and all of a sudden we could send these kids home who had polio. I mean, that's miraculous. That's like, that's only a good thing. The problem is, you're two, two things. I mean, there are many things, but the problem is that number one, it builds this new sense of possibility in so that we're that much less willing to talk about death. Well, but maybe ECMO and maybe... Um, and also, you're gonna sweep up a lot more people because you're gonna try it on so many more people. Well, it worked on this one, so let's, and you're gonna just start sweeping up a lot more people into the use of this technology who simply won't make it. And so then you've got these people, again, suspended on ECMO, which is a very, I mean, these are very, very large, large catheters going all the way uh, into the main veins and arteries. It's a very serious thing, and people are restricted to living in an ICU. Um, and you know, it's it's it brings up a lot of ethical and very important things, and again, allows us to have another reason to deny and to put off this conversation about death and dying. Because well, but now we got ECMO, so let you know. So it's dangerous. It's it's complicated. Well, your use of the word defeat too makes me think also of people thinking that death is a failure in some ways. Yeah, it's very curious, isn't it, that we all want to want to you know celebrate life and be pro-life and all these things, not realizing that so far nobody's been able to beat death. Not one person. Not one person. Um, yes, I mean, we doctors, it's only in the past few years that people have started, I mean, 
I don't know, maybe maybe even in this book, I, 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 let's redefine success. You know, doctors really don't see success as death, death, except for the palliative care movement or maybe some people in geriatrics or family practice, the more sort of holistic subspecialties. But like in the ICU or the oncology world or surgery, I mean, death is failure. Death yeah, I was struck failure. by how many medical professionals that you interacted with absolutely would not hear anything about palliative care or thinking there's another route to preserve some quality of life for that person. They could have sort of some of the things that they might like, like being able to eat food, for example, something they would enjoy, or the, the comfort or the familiarity of, of their home with their loved ones, or be able to talk. Yeah, yeah. People don't, people don't understand when they sign up for these hopeful surgeries or hopeful ECMOs or hopeful this, that so much of the time, the, the, the burdens, the potential burdens to them are, again, the ventilator facility, the arms tied down, the never, you know, being alone, family not being able to be with you, um, not eating, not talking. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's the, the risks of that choice are very great and people don't have any idea about them. And you know what, as a doctor, telling people about those risks feels harsh. It feels cruel. You know, you, you want to be hopeful. You want to make people feel better. And so to give that information is really hard. Sometimes you feel cruel. And that's why I'm a real advocate of two things. Communication practice and skills building. And there's a group called Vital Talk, which I'm a big advocate for, which teaches doctors and other healthcare professionals how to use the words. Drilling you, we get drilled. We sit in the hot seat, we go round and round and round and drill communication strategies. And tools, bedside tools. And there's been lots of research looking at, at, at an enhancement in patient, in communication, patients understanding, families understanding what is really going on with the use of bedside tools. And what that is is brochures or something that I love to talk about, which is my friend Angelo Valandez, who I don't know if anyone's heard of the conversation, uh, um, ACP Decisions Online. Great, great. Um, they Now, unfortunately, most of what they do is give this to hospitals, so it's not direct to consumer, but they have these little short videos that basically deal with decisions, medical decisions, and it's a video, just a very neutral video telling you about what the, the benefits and the burdens of this decision are. Benefits and burdens of chemotherapy, the benefits and burdens of CPR, the benefits and burdens, we, we, I just worked with him to do one on getting a tracheostomy, right? Transitioning your temporary breathing tube to a tracheostomy for long-term uh, breathing tube support. And it's just like, you just press play and you say, here, watch this. And so you don't have to say those words. The doctor doesn't have to be saying these words that feel so harsh. I think we still need to get that information to people, even though it's hard for us to tell it. Yeah, and it's one thing, I think, to have the, the patient, the, the, that relationship. But then so many things happened in the book where it was the family that actually got in the way of you being able to talk to their, their mother, their father, their loved one about any of this. Yeah. And how you have to handle that, how you have to try to very delicately think about culture and religion and all kinds of things. Yeah. Well, I think you put it really well when we were talking um, back there before, that there's so many sort of psychodynamics and family dynamics issues that come into play in the dramatic moments of dying, of, of illness. You know, th th this is the moment when all of that stuff comes back. And so to expect these very complex decisions to be enhanced in those, I mean, it, 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 the, the potential 
for um, bad personal and family dynamics to get in the way of good decision making is very, very high in these moments of extremis, of stress, of critical illness, of sadness, of physiolo you know, a physiologic distress. This is a moment when you're really at risk for having a lot of, 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 of family just you know, one of the things that we talk about is the, the sister who flew in from the coast, which is a, like it's a common, or the brother who flew in from New York City. There's one person who kind of comes in sometimes, and this happens a lot, after a lot of conversation and thinking and processing, and then per, one person flies in and says, wait a minute, what are you doing? We got to keep her alive. And it can throw a whole family and all, you know, into a very, because who wants to say no, no, you're wrong. Let's let mom, let's, let's allow her to have a natural death. And you feel like the bad guy, and this, we see this a lot. Yeah, don't give up. Don't give there up. could always be a miracle. Yeah. yeah. Well, in Extremis, if you haven't seen it, you can download it on Netflix. It's 24 minutes, a documentary that was nominated for Academy Award. It's riveting to watch these families and watch the ways in which you're trying to reach some of these patients to just gently help them understand what it is they're really signing up for. Yeah and the range of reactions and outcomes. I mean, sometimes I looked at your face and I thought, oh, this must be heartbreaking when you work so hard to help them understand that this is not gonna end well. And it's probably not gonna be what they want. And, and particularly when you feel personally accused of murder or depriving or- Or it's insurance, you're trying to kill I them to give I care about them. money or, yeah. yeah. There's a story in the book about a, about a patient that I had when I was in Newark, a lovely, man with very, very bad end-stage emphysema who was having, you know, one episode after another coming into the hospital, getting on a breathing machine. And we, this last, this one, we just could not get him off the breathing machine. It had been two to three weeks on the breathing machine. And the question was, is it, were we going to put a trach in him? And we spent, I spent a few days with this family, with the, the, this patient who was alert on the breathing machine and his son talking and talking and Tell me about him and what kind of person is he? And understanding that this is a very social man. He loved to play chess with his friends at his coffee shop down the street. And he hated to be alone. And we described what a ventilator facility would be. And after really processing back and forth and back and forth, he couldn't live that way. And so we decided that it was going to be time. We were going to take the tube out and we were going to keep him calm and comfortable. And, and, um, Again, this was after several meetings, and as I was walking out the door, the son said, Doc, Doc, I, I need to ask you a question. And we stepped outside, and he said, Are you sure you're, you're not doing this to save money? Oh, oh. And it was just, like, heartbreaking to think. And I said, I, I just, I understand why that crossed your mind, and I'm so sorry that it did. You know, and, and I think he, and we ended up taking the tube out, and he passed away pretty quickly, but... It was just so heartbreaking to think that that would even be a lingering question yeah. in someone's mind. Well, you mind. do a beautiful job of talking about cultural humility. And the, here's a, a, a Caucasian doctor in an African-American family and all the history of yeah. the Tuskegee experiments. I mean, so many things that have happened to African-American people and that you were able to name it and that you, you basically supported him in asking the question. I thought it was a beautiful way of just being genuine in that moment. It's, it's, it's tough because, you know, we, we, many of us go into medicine because of a, a sense of justice and serving and, and to 
you, that is a reality. It's a reality that I'm a white doctor and that this was a black patient. And there, you know, it was, there's nothing I can do but to acknowledge that. Um, a lot of times, you know, I will bring um, the, the palliative care chaplain who I'm very close with, who's African-American, I frequently, if I sense that there's a sense of distrust or a sense of dis discomfort or worry that maybe I'm not, that I don't have their best interest in mind, I, I bring her with me and she's very helpful at building bridges because I think there's a lot of distrust with very understandable reasons. Absolutely. And one of the other things you talk about is one of the families where um, the woman was very ill and it was uh, kind of the, the sister, the daughters were all there and they really didn't want you to talk to her directly mm. about anything about her condition. And she was quite ill, it seemed, and didn't have much time left. Mm, yeah. The, the, and the bind that put you in around, they wouldn't let you talk to the patient. Yeah. Well, and she had made it really clear that she did not want to be in the intensive care unit. She wanted to go back home to her native country and die. She thought she might be dying. She wasn't sure. They didn't want her to know she had cancer. Her biggest fear in life was that she would get cancer. And they had said that for years. She, she's terrified of cancer. Do not tell her that she has cancer. And, um, and so I was trying to be respectful. And uh, so for a long time, I would, okay, we won't talk to her. And she was sort of, she would lie in bed with her blanket over her head. And that was, I think, very comforting to her. So I'd come into the room, her family would gather up their belongings to come talk with me out in the hall. They were very clear with me. In our culture, we don't, the, the doctor does not talk to the patient, talk to the family, to the son-in-law. Um, he's the head of the family and that's who you talk to. And I said, okay. And this went on day after day after day. This is a woman who had been in the ICU and had ripped out her, e her breathing tube because she's like, I don't want it anymore. And she had somehow survived that and now I, I just felt like I know this woman's gonna go back in the ICU and I'm probably gonna end up being her doctor in there and I really wanna check in with her if that's okay because I have a feeling it's not okay to her, for her. And so I, every day, wasn't able to talk to her, didn't feel like I could break through to talk to her. I, I thought I might traumatize her if, if, if what they were saying was true. And it just one, and then one day, they, they actually kicked me off the case because I kept saying to them, I really think I should talk to her and they finally said, we don't want you to come anymore, which has happened to me on a couple of cases. You know, when you try to talk honestly about something, people just don't want it. And they say, you know what, thank you, but we don't want to talk to you anymore. So I had been respectful and stayed away, but then I was the ICU attending. And this patient ended up in the ICU temporarily. She was just coming in for dialysis. But she saw me, she was getting dialysis. She was sitting in bed, her arms were tied down on the bed. And, and I walked by the room and she recognized me because I had, I had been the palliative care doctor when I first met her. Now I was the ICU doctor. And she was going like this with her hand, like, come here. And so I went into the room and I didn't know what to do because the family by this point had been very angry with me and had said, stay away from our mother. And she, so I made this decision to go in and talk to her. She was beckoning me. So I went in with somebody who spoke her language who happened to be one of the nurses. And she looked at me and said, what's going on? What's happening? And I said, well, what do you understand? And she looked at me and she said, do I have cancer? And I didn't know what to do. And I made a decision to say yes. And she just stared at me and I realized I'm gonna need to be here for a while. So I went out to the hallway to get a chair to come sit next to her bed. And as I came in, as I, as I walked out, I saw her family walk into the room. 
And I just heard, I stood there and I thought, oh my gosh. And I listened for about 45 seconds and then I heard scream, someone screaming. How, what kind of a doctor would tell? Because she said to her family, "Do I, I have cancer, you didn't tell me. What kind of a doctor would tell a sick woman that she has cancer? What kind of an unethical doctor would tell? And I didn't know what to do. It was my worst nightmare. And I ended up, and I'm ashamed to say it, but I walked out the back door of the ICU. I couldn't even go back in there. And um, that was a horrible experience. And I don't know if I did the right thing or the wrong thing by telling her. I, there's no right answers to these questions. But isn't there a moment when you are your authentic <laughs> self and you... In terms of someone's eye contact in a moment like that, you just have to make a, a decision. I would have done it again the same way. I guess that's the best I can say about whether it was right or wrong. I think I would have done it again. I w maybe I wouldn't have snuck out the back of the ICU. I feel embarrassed about that. I just, didn't, I just felt like if I went back in the room, it would turn into a bigger commotion and it would upset this woman even more. I, didn't, I don't know if that was the right decision, but I would have told her if, again, I think I would have told her. Maybe what I should have done was told her with her family in the room, but her family would have said not to tell her. So I don't know. I mean, these are very Wasn't tough this situations. this the case also where the daughter could be cursed? Yes. If she told her mother the that she was dying? The day that they kicked me out of the, room, uh, of the case was when I told the daughter that the, that the mother was actually dying. And she got so, she was so beside herself and that, that later that day I was called by the team and they said they would prefer that you not come back. And they said the, the daughter told us that if she did what you're pushing her to do, which I, I wasn't pushing her to do anything, but if, if she did, if she took her, if she said that she would, and by the way, she was not on breathing machine by this point. She was not on any life support, but she said if she didn't put her on life support, she could be held responsible for her mother's death. So she felt that it was, she was afraid she was going to be cursed if she said, no, let my mother pass without machines. She felt that she needed to keep that end-of-life conveyor belt going. Hmm. Well, some of these cases, I mean, I'm thinking about the one where there's dozens of family members and they're, they're wanting some security in with you because they're afraid there could be oh. gangs. I mean, this whole way in which you, you're like this referee, <laughs> suddenly this family of origin, this incredibly overwhelming in the midst of someone who's dying. All that's going on too. Oh my gosh! I mean, there 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 are several cases in there of emotions that are just flaring. Again, all the family stuff, the guilt, the 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 sibling rivalry, the the money concerns, and who's going to get this, and and the comp You know, there's all sorts of stuff that happens in these moments when someone when when people hear that someone's dying, and I, being in that room can be very stressful. I've had several situations where I've been actually scared. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you manage the stress? I bite my nails. <laughs> I it's very probably, portable. You can take that with you anywhere. <laughs> I, 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 it's very stressful. It's very stressful. I don't know. Ask my husband. <laughs> how, do, how do I manage it? <laughs> it's very stressful. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. But just 24 minutes And that's extremis. why so many people don't... <laughs> I was like, my partner and I were like, oh my God, was this all... So, this feels is this like over? Oh my God, this, <laughs> when is this going to be over? <laughs> and it's a little bit like reading the book. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, it was hard to keep reading it and stop and come back to it. Yeah. Because there's yeah. something about thinking about death, and you say it in here, that makes you sad. Oh, yeah. Thinking about your own death. People think that a palliative care doctor 
loves to talk about death. People think, whenever there's an article in the New York Times, oh, you gotta read this, you'll love it, it's about death. <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna make a confession. I never read When Breath Becomes Air. But you, I'm sure everyone in this room has read it, right? Okay. It's this New York Times bestseller, fabulous, beautiful, and I'm friends with Lucy Kalanithi. I mean, she, I couldn't read it. I couldn't read it. I knew what it was about. I'm sure it was beautiful. I was sitting on my bedside table for a couple months, and I finally just gave up and said, you know what, I'm not reading this. Maybe in a few years. It does make me sad. Yeah. My own death makes me sad. Um, but I do think about it a lot. And I don't think anyone can say death isn't sad. Yeah. I mean, maybe for some people it's not. But for me, at this time in my life, if I were to die, which is a, certainly a possibility, it would be sad. I mean, I wouldn't see my kids graduate. I wouldn't see my kids get married. I wouldn't see my kids have kids, assuming all, you know. That would be really that sad. that your husband might take on a new... <laughs> my husband will probably get married again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you talk about the exercise that you go through. You do a mindful death uh, workshop, and you talk about you know, being overcome with tears and taking that out, thinking, wow. Big, you know, tears coming down, like, right next to my nose and trying not to sniffle. Yeah, I, I found it very painful. Uh, and it, but, but it was a, it was a, just to give you a little background, I was um, at a, um, I went to this conference at UCSF called Mindfulness in the ICU. And I, w I was like, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. And so I went, and there were barely any doctors. There were a couple of young fellows, and the rest were nurses, um, and uh, some amazing nurses who I met, and physical therapists and other people. And this guy, Mitchell Levy, he's, I write about him a lot. He's, he's well, in my book, I, I think he's a hero. He's this pulmonary and critical care doctor, real intense guy. He's the guy who came up with the surviving sepsis campaign. You know, sepsis is one of the most serious illnesses that we see in the intensive care unit. And he came, came up with the protocols for managing sepsis. But he's also a Buddhist. And, um, you know, he's a Jubu. And he's really, he's really into meditating and mindfulness. And he's trying to get doctors and nurses and people in the intensive care unit to just get more mindful and to really like look at our own lives and our own deaths and be at peace, you know, things that we never think about in the ICU. And most types of people who go into the ICU are not the types who, I mean, I hate to generalize, but we're not like, I include myself a few years back, people who necessarily think about being in the moment. We're always thinking about the future and what are we gonna do and what's our next step in the protocol? And uh, so this, I went to this thing, kind of curious, and well, what is this? And this is, and um, he did this mindfulness exercise where he wanted us to think of our, our own death and to picture it. And he went through and asked a bunch of questions. And I was just like, okay, so I, you know, it was kind of cute, he wasn't wearing his shoes. I thought, oh, that's so, that's so Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> and then I sat there and I was like really getting into it and I started crying. I was trying really hard not to sob because it was a quiet room. And I'm like, this one, you know, there weren't that many ICU attendings and I'm there, all these, you know, people that I work with are, and I'm thinking, what's it gonna look like if I start like sobbing hysterically when I, as I'm picturing all of these sad things about my death, which are really sad to die now. And um, anyway, I'm babbling, but, but that was a, I think that was a really important moment because I, 
since that time have really been able to think about my own death more, even though it's still sad, and think about and plan for it and talk more to my own family about it. It was a really good moment for me. Well, I think the, our own death in some ways, thinking about it, it's a bit of an acquired taste. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, if we do it little by little, kind of trick ourselves. Like, part yeah. of talking to you tonight was like tricking myself, because we, we were on the phone, we were talking, oh, the whole part in here about your medical directive, which I thought, oh, gosh. My partner and I went to a weekend workshop with three other couples, and we did our medical, medical directives, and, oh, good, put it in the file away under, you know, medical directive. Your medical directive was incomplete, somehow. <laughs> So I had to get mine out and say, is mine incomplete? Which, <laughs> which box did I choose? Because you were talking about the different boxes that you pick. You know, again, as a palliative care doctor, people think that I'm going to be, number one, totally a big supporter of advanced directives, which I am, but with caveats. And number two, that I'm going to have it done. And you and got most of it done. I got everything done except the most important part. The box. The checkbox. Yeah, There's you have two choices. Checkbox. It's a, it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. That you could, but but actually no. Okay, let me just back it up. The advanced directive has several different parts. One is picking a surrogate, which is extremely important, really important, because we've just talked about all the people who have situations where the people who would speak for them if they were in a coma have no idea what they want. Because it's never so, you have to find that person who you think is going to stand strong for what it is that you want, and then you have to communicate to that person in multiple ways over years, over the hopefully over the course of years, what's important to you. So that's one part of the advanced directive. The second part is, do you want to donate your organs or not? Mm -hmm. Okay. Third part is, um, I, there's a couple of other parts that are very easy to fill out, but section two, yeah. which is the healthcare directive, the health instructive, which is what we all think of as the most important part of an advanced directive. It's relating to what do you want to do if you're in a serious situation? Do you want to be on life support? Do you not want to be on life support? It's too complicated to have a checkbox. The, the checkboxes basically say if you're in a situation where you're not likely to recover to a situation that's that you would find acceptable, do you want us to keep you alive or do you not want us to keep you alive on machines? And that all sounds Good, but the, the problem is for an ICU doctor, it's too, it, the, there's too many possibilities. What does a life that's acceptable for you mean? For one person, it might mean one thing, and for another person, it might be a completely other thing. And if I don't know that, then whatever you check on that checkbox doesn't mean anything to me, right? For somebody who, you know, one person might say, if I'm going to be cognitively impaired, I do not want you to do heroics to keep me alive. Okay, well, that's helpful. But for another person, they, they may feel that being a little bit cognitively impaired, if they could still know where they were, would be okay to be kept alive. And it, it's very, very personal. So this in and of itself isn't enough. Yeah, they make it very black and white without all yeah. the nuances the and the nuance. gray areas, which is why I think having conversations with your loved ones or who's going to speak for you is so important yes. along the way because what it looks like today may be different down the road depending on how things change. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. The back of the book is so great because there's a whole section on resources. And you talk about this, uh, the idea of these death cafes and ways that people get together and actually talk about death, talk about all the things that are associated for them and what they would want, what they want. And there's a lot of provocative questions in there we might not think to ask about. There's also a really great game called uh, Go Wish, 
where you can play it by yourself. It's like playing solitary online. It's really fun. And so you, you cover a lot of different things in here, which I encourage you all to take a look at. And we're, we're just so grateful uh, that you could spend the evening with us and uh, hope we can continue the conversation and have you come back for a death cafe at some point in the future. Just invite me and I'll be there. Yeah. And they, they make a big deal about death cafes. Uh, you, you should serve cake for some reason. So I think it's a British thing because I think it started in, in, in right. England. But they said, if possible, serve cake. <laughs> so I will guarantee you it'll be good cake, maybe from Tartine or someplace Ooh. like that. But thank you so much. And thank you all. Uh, we really appreciate the evening with you, oh, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu podcast.